Welcome to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast series based on readings from old Knoxville newspapers. I'm Melissa Brenneman, Robbie Griffith is the reader, and Knox County historian Steve Cottom provides the commentary. Kid Curry was one of the most wanted criminals of the Wild West, a cohort of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. After participating in the Great Northern train robbery, he hid out in Knoxville until one evening he got into fisticuffs in a Bowery pool hall. Police arrived on the scene, and in the exchange of gunfire, the bandit, whose real name was Harvey Logan, escaped from the police he had wounded. Logan's own wounds led to his identification and capture two days later, but could the Knoxville jail hold him for long? Desperado Captured The Journal and Tribune, December 16, 1901 The man who shot officers Dinwiddie and Saylor has been captured. He is not Harry Longabow, but Harvey Logan, another desperado who participated in the Montana banknote robbery. A companion was also arrested at the same time, who may also have been connected with a train robbery. The men were captured at Jefferson City yesterday afternoon about 5 o'clock by a posse of citizens headed by W.B. Carey, a merchant and livery stable keeper of Jefferson City. A Negro man had told Carey that he had seen a man near Jefferson City who looked like the fellow that shot the Knoxville policeman and that he had a rag on his head. Carey had the description in the Journal and Tribune of Sunday morning read to the Negro and found that it described the man he had seen. He also learned that two men had been seen together. Carey then called up police headquarters in this city and told what he knew and asked for instructions and a further description of the man. He was told that he would be notified at once and Chief Atkins and Lieutenant McIntyre were both notified by Desk Sergeant Williams. Both soon came to the hall and called up Jefferson City again. Meanwhile, Carey had gone out and had seen one of the men who turned back on meeting him, which satisfied Carey that the man was trying to avoid observation. When Lieutenant McIntyre reached the police headquarters, he called up Mr. Carey and told him he believed he had located the right man. Carey said that he could get no one to go with him to try to arrest the desperado and asked the lieutenant to bring some men and come up to go with him. The lieutenant referred the matter to Chief Atkins, who had meanwhile reached his office and was given permission to go and told to pick his own men. He took Sergeant Malone, Patrolman Sid Giles, and Tom DeWine. Giles is an old regular army man and DeWine an experienced officer. This was about four o'clock in the afternoon. The eastbound vestibule train was delayed about three hours yesterday and was just starting out when these arrangements had been made. Chief Atkins got the dispatcher's office by phone and had the train held until the four officers could reach the depot. Meanwhile, Mr. Carey had succeeded in getting some other men to agree to help him make the arrest. He had been directed by Lieutenant McIntyre and Chief Atkins not to let the men escape, but if he could not arrest them to keep them located or notice which way they went. Carey got his brother-in-law, Walter Paget, and three other men to accompany him. The men armed themselves with shotguns and started out. Carey found one of the men, who the police supposed to be George Parker, but who gives his name as John C. Drees, coming toward Jefferson City on the railroad tracks. He was halted and made to hold up his hands and was then guarded in the depot while the posse went to hunt for the other man. He was found about a mile from Jefferson City, hidden in a patch of thick brush in a spot of woodland, hovered over a fire which he had built. 
The men were on him before he knew that they were trying to surround him, and Carey ordered him to throw up his hands and do it quickly. The men were not taking any chances, and the man, after hesitating a moment and seeing that they were ready to shoot if he made a single false movement, slowly raised his hands to the height of his shoulders. He was told to march toward the railroad. Just as the party reached the railroad, the train with the four Knoxville officers came up and was stopped by the conductor to allow them to get on. The two men were brought back to the city in the custody of the four police officers on the regular passenger train due here at 610, which came in 25 minutes late. A crowd of fully 2,000 men was at the Southern Depot when the train arrived, and there was some ugly talk by some of those in the crowd, and one excited man fired off a pistol. The officers hurried the two prisoners into the patrol wagon, which was driven rapidly to the city hall, and the men were hurried through a crowd of from five to six hundred which had gathered there to the office of the police lieutenants, the crowd being excluded. During their trip, the two men were perfectly cool and both refused absolutely to do any talking. The men were taken into one of the rooms at the city hall and made to strip and were examined for marks of identification. A number of police officers were present. The man who gave his name is Wilson, the same one who assaulted the policeman, answers every description given by the Pinkerton Agency of Harvey Logan. The other man, who claims to have been in the city for three weeks and gives his name as Drees, would pass anywhere as George Parker, whose description and photograph the police also have. He claims to be an iron molder and has a card from the local iron molders union in his pocket, but he might easily have stolen this and the name as well. This will be looked into today. After being examined, the men were ordered to dress again, and while several warrants were being sworn out for them before Squire Sellers, the men were given supper. The man who claims to be John Drees ate very little, his eyes constantly shifting from one to another of the officers who surrounded him, then to the door, which was guarded by Pat Conley, one of the burliest and strongest men on the local police force. The other man, Wilson or Johnson or Logan, who has a dozen other aliases, ate a hearty meal and afterwards smoked a cigar, which one of the policemen gave him, with evident enjoyment. He was about the coolest man in the room. Warrants were taken for Wilson, alias Logan, for felonious assault on the persons of Dinwiddie and Sailor, and also one warrant charging him with being a fugitive from justice. The bail was fixed at $10,000 in each case. Both men were taken to the county jail and safely locked behind the bars for the night. They will have a preliminary hearing later. Chief Atkins has wired to the Pinkerton Agency at Chicago, notifying them that his officers have in custody at least one of the great northern train robbers and asking that a detective acquainted with the men be sent at once. He expects one of Pinkerton's men here tonight or by Tuesday. Dries apparently told a straight story. He claims that he left Knoxville last Friday having been on a spree and lost about all his wages. He said that he was hoboing his way to Bristol and that he didn't know anything about the other man at all. He showed a union card, as stated, and claims that his home is in Louisville, Kentucky. The other man, whoever he is, is a cool customer. He was entirely unconcerned all the time after his arrest. He was evidently trying, while being marched to the railroad tracks, to get his hands to his pockets, when Lieutenant McIntyre searched him, the reason was explained. 
In one of the inside pockets of his coat were found a package wrapped in newspapers and containing just $2,000 of the bills of the National Bank of Montana in denominations of both 20 and 10s. His pocketbook, a very old one, contained $240 in these same bills. In the book were two baggage room checks and about $50 in other bills not of the stolen money. The man absolutely refused to talk to either the police officers on the train or to anyone else. In reply to Squire Sellers' inquiry as to his name, he said he had none. When questioned as to how he got the cuts and bruises on his head, how his finger was hurt, how certain scars came on his hand, he merely replied with a half-surly smile, Damned if I know. That was the entire sum of his conversation. He seems to realize that he is in a hole, but isn't going to help the officers out at all. The men, after the papers had been regularly served on them, were both taken to jail in the patrol wagon. They were guarded by the same four officers. The policemen didn't carry any clubs this time, but they had their prisoners handcuffed together and also had their guns handy. At the jail, Dr. Ed Loans was called to dress the wounds on Wilson or Logan's head. The entire top of his head was badly beaten up and the blood was matted all through his hair. His shirt front was soaked red with blood, showing that the two wounded officers' story of their fight with the man was absolutely correct. The man admitted that he had escaped directly after the fight and after shooting the two officers. He said he struck the railroad about five miles from the city and found when the sun rose that he was going eastward. He lay up under some trees in the woods near the railroad all day Saturday traveling on again at night. He stole an old worn-out hat and a pair of discarded blue overalls somewhere, which partly disguised him. He was wearing them when arrested. The hat had the crown out, and he had fastened the crown together with wooden pins, which had been whittled out of some fence rail. He said he had eaten nothing since he fled from the city on Friday night and was nearly frozen to death when he was arrested last night about dusk. These statements were drawn from him slowly at the jail by several of the officers. He also admitted that he was the man who had the fight in the bar room on the Bowery and that he shot the two officers. He said, in talking very guardedly about this, that he seemed to have given them a pretty warm reception. The man never asked at all the reason for his arrest, nor did he make the slightest inquiry as to whether his shots had either killed or wounded the two policemen. He talks very slowly and is inclined not to talk at all. At the jail, he finally claimed his name was William Johnson and that he was from Louisville, Kentucky. Lieutenant McIntyre looked through the prisoner's pocketbook. In it, he found about $50 of good bills, $240 of the Montana bank bills, and some small change. There were also two baggage room checks. He and Patrolman Giles went to the Southern Depot and secured the baggage from Baggage Master Gore. The baggage consisted of one very fine alligator leather grip, elegantly fitted in brass, leather-lined, and a common canvas telescope grip. Lieutenant McIntyre had the doors of Mr. Gore's private office closed and then searched the baggage. On top of the smaller grip was a handsome blued steel Colt revolver, forty-five caliber, loaded all round. There were the usual boxes of soap, shaving implements, collars, underwear, and odds and ends. Finally, a newspaper package was found. In it were $3,130 more of the bills of the National Bank of Montana, the same bills which figured in the Great Northern Train Robbery. 
The newspaper in which the bills were wrapped was a Cincinnati Times Star of the date December 4th. There was a blank book, paper and envelopes, ink and pen, but not the slightest clue to the man's real name or occupation. Some of these bills, as well as about half of those found in the pocketbook, had been signed. The names of half a dozen different men were signed as president, not more than ten being alike. The same was true as to the name of the cashier, and the man who did the work, judging from the writing, was evidently unacquainted with the names of the officials of the bank whose signatures he was trying to forge. The larger number of the bills had never been taken apart and had the original rubber bands around them and were unsigned. A Journal and Tribune reporter approached the prisoner, whom he greeted in this fashion. Good evening, Mr. Longabow. The reporter thrust his hand through the bar towards that of the prisoner, who was half sitting, half reclining. He glanced up at the greeting, then looked unconcerned, coolly remarking without offering his hand, I don't know you. Thinking perhaps that his manner had been unwarranted in view of the friendly greeting, he added, that is by that name, my name is Johnson. When you shake hands, be careful and take only three fingers, and don't squeeze my hand. My first finger is very sore. He then proffered his hand. The reporter, who had withdrawn his hand, again placed it through the bars and shook hands with, quote, Mr. Johnson, unquote. Thinking to draw the man into conversation, the reporter remarked, That's a pretty bad-looking finger. How did you hurt that, anyway? Without looking up and in an indifferent, careless sort of way, he replied, Damn if I know. Ask some other people about that. They know more about it than I do, I guess. Sheriff Fox stated that the man was greatly addled at first on being taken to jail and didn't seem to realize where he was. His wounds were telling on him, so it seemed, together with his exposure to the extreme cold. Photographs will be made of the prisoner today, and the first installment of Pinkerton's Detectives is expected here this afternoon, when it is probable that measurements according to the Bertillon system for identifying criminals will be made. If clean-shaven and neatly dressed, the prisoner would be regarded as strikingly handsome were it not for a sinister, daredevil expression on his countenance, indicative of a life of crime, and as though he had been hunted by officers and was ever expecting trouble and ready to meet it at any cost. The police claim Drees is George Parker, alias George Cassidy, alias Butch Cassidy, or Butch Ingerfield and his appearance is certainly corroborative of their suspicion. He is described in the circular issued by the Pinkertons. In height, build, complexion, and even to a small scar on the left eye, it is the same man. Dries, for so he is to be called until he is identified as Cassidy, is a man of medium height, heavy build, though not fleshy, sandy hair, blue eyes, light skin, and clean-shaven. He claims to be an iron molder by trade and says that he was at work in Griffith's local foundry until last Thursday. Four years ago, said Dries, I was apprenticed to Scantham and Company of Louisville, since dissolved to learn to be an iron molder. I worked there until nine months ago. Then, when the company suspended operation, I worked for three months at the depot as a freight handler. Three months ago, I left home and went to Birmingham, where I met James Barton of Nashville. 
Several weeks ago, we both came to Knoxville and went to work as molders at the Griffiths Foundry. Last Thursday, we got drunk, and Friday, we decided to walk, that is, leave town, and as our spree was one of mingled hilarity and extravagance, we had to ride Shank's mare. We walked about 11 miles Friday, and then walked about 8 Saturday, arriving at Hodges Station, just a little this side of Jefferson City. When we went to the latter place to get something to eat, I noticed we attracted attention, but thought nothing of it. While I and Burton were in the telegraph office, we saw a man we now know as the one in yonder, referring to the other prisoner, walked by going slowly up the track. We tried to catch the train four miles above town on a grade at a later hour. Burton got off. I failed because the other one, Logan, got in the way. I started back to the telegraph office and was arrested on my way back. Soon afterward, I heard Logan was arrested, but knew nothing of him, and it aroused no interest in me. I had not seen the man before, never saw him, and don't want to see him. I had no connection with him whatever. However, when the train pulled into the depot here, and I saw the big crowd that had gathered, I begun to realize I was arrested for something worse than vagrancy, and inquired what it was. The noise the crowd made and the way it surged and struggled around us when we went to the police station and the additional knowledge that I, a poor friendless boy, was arrested for attempting to kill a policeman and for being implicated in the Montana robbery, I lost my nerve and got scared. But I am innocent of anything but a little wildness and feel I will come out all right. Pinkerton Man Will Arrive Today, The Journal and Tribune, December 17, 1901. The representative of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency, who left Chicago Sunday night in response to Chief Atkins' telegram, did not arrive last night as expected. He would have come on the train due from Harriman in Cincinnati at 5.55 last evening, but there was a wreck on the Cincinnati Southern, which delayed all southbound traffic on that road for four or five hours. The train from Harriman did not arrive until after eight o'clock, and then did not bring the through coaches from Cincinnati and Louisville. Consequently, the man who was under arrest for shooting the two local police officers, and on the belief that he is Harvey Logan, the leader of the gang of great northern train robbers, and the most desperate criminal of that party, cannot be positively identified until today. While there is scarcely any room for doubt that the man is Harvey Logan, there is, of course, a remote chance that he is not. The fact, however, that he was so well-armed, that he showed himself such a desperate man in resisting arrest, and more than all, beside his almost exact resemblance to the pictures sent out by the Pinkerton Detective Agency, the fact that he had in his possession some $10,000 of the bills of the National Bank of Montana proves that if not Logan, he was at least one of the train robbers. The other suspect who was arrested at Jefferson City is probably innocent of any connection with the crime committed by Logan and his gang. Mr. Fred L. Griffiths, president of Southern Foundry and Machine Company, said yesterday that a man named Drees and one named Burton had come there asking the superintendent for work about two weeks ago. His recollection of them was that they appeared to be two hobos, but they showed that they were experienced molders and had union cards, and they were both hired. 
Mr. Griffith thinks the man's story that he got drunk last Thursday and left the city on Friday morning is correct. This being so, the man will probably be released, although not before Wednesday morning, when the preliminary examination of both the suspects is set before Squire Sellers. By that time, Pinkerton detectives will have seen him. If Drees is not one of Logan's pals, the man who came with Logan from Chattanooga last Wednesday night is still unaccounted for. Logan and another man arrived, and their baggage, the two grips, which were located by Lieutenant McIntyre, did not come on the same train. The baggage was sent on the next train, which arrived at 1.40 a.m. Two men, one of them now known to be Logan, were at the station to meet this train. They seemed unusually anxious about the two grips. Logan was allowed to pass through the gate to meet the train and see the baggage put off. The other man, afterward, pushed past Gateman Chesney and also walked quickly to the truck on which the baggage had been placed. The men carried the two grips inside, took some things from them, then deposited them in the check room. The other stranger is now being looked for in every direction, as it is very likely that he may be one of the train robbers also. He was considerably taller than Logan, with light eyes and hair and a very light, sandy mustache, his description fitting that of Butch Parker quite accurately. The police learned yesterday that some of the Montana money is still being circulated, and they will pick up any of it that they find in circulation. Although the money is good, even without the signatures of the president and cashier of the bank for which it was printed, it can be identified as stolen money by the numbers and series of the notes. Dr. C.E. Loans, who dressed Logan's wounds Sunday night, visited him again yesterday morning and took one stitch in the worst wound on his head. Logan didn't flinch. Dr. Loans, in speaking of the wonderful nerve of the man, said, He has plenty of grit and a bucket of coarse sand to spare. The wound is about three inches in length and had been laid open to the bone. It was evidently made by a policeman's billet. Another wound, just back of the right temple, must have been a jab by the end of a billet. The man had lost a quantity of blood from the wounds and was suffering from weakness on this account, as well as exposure to cold and hunger when captured. He did not talk to any great extent to Dr. Loans, though he was friendly and inclined to joke with the physician when the two were alone. He evidently is used to being stared at, for he maintains remarkable composure under the bold, curious scrutiny of those who call to see him. While the crowds are being admitted yesterday in groups of five and six, the prisoner jocularly remarked, Right this way, boys, ten cents a peep. Several of those who visited the cell left dimes on the railing. The prisoner took the first one given him, but when the others began to tender dimes, he objected and refused to receive any more coins, saying that he had enough money to care for his wants. When asked if hammocks made comfortable sleeping quarters, he replied in the negative, declaring they made one humpbacked. He was absolutely self-composed at all times, and when he spoke at all, he used good language, well-framed, intelligent sentences, not as much slang as might be expected, and very little profanity. Dr. Lone says he is a cowboy and gives every indication of having done much hard riding. He thinks Logan spent much of his past life on the plains engaged in the fine art of cowpunching. He judges by the way Logan walks and his physical makeup, which he says is perfect. Logan's limbs are slightly bowed and his toes turn in slightly. 
Dr. Lone says that Logan has a half pound of superfluous flesh on his body and could give anybody a hard fight. He is of the opinion that the policeman landed but one sure blow on the man's head. He thinks Logan is a close, hard fighter and knows well and by experience the art of dodging a blow from a club, realizing that to dodge but an inch destroys the effect of a hard blow. Dr. Lone says it is wonderful the amount of interest shown in the prisoner by women. He has heard of scores of women who have expressed a desire to see Logan, an admiration for a nervy man who held up an express train, among other things. Logan certainly made the best record with a revolver at the shooting gallery on Gay Street, when in this city last week before he shot the policeman. To the admiration of a crowd of spectators, he made an even ring around the target with bullets and did everything else that a perfect marksman can do. Hello, Knox County historian Steve Cottom. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Kid Curry, Knoxville's brush with international celebrity. It was about a year that he was in custody in the Knox County jail, and he was quite the celebrity while he was here, much to the dismay of the police, the sheriff's people who had had him in custody. They hadn't expected that kind of a, of a response. And uh, I think it continued to be a surprise to the authorities that he was such a sort of a folk hero in the community and that everybody in the state, from the governor on down to, lo- to all the l- lovely young women of the town, wanted to get a look at him. <laughs> they had long lines of people marching through the jail, um, looking just to have a look at him. And at times he was polite, and at times he was amused, and sometimes he was very uncooperative or unfriendly. So, <laughs> <laughs> was it unusual for? prisoners to be on parade that way or it on display? Was, I think it was not unusual at all for people to, who wanted to see a prisoner to be allowed to, but he was a celebrity. That was the difference. And so everybody wanted to have a look at him. Mm-hmm. And particularly, I mean, during the earlier part of his incarceration, he was, he had, you know, he had been beaten up pretty good and the two policemen that he shot weren't killed. So he became sort of a celebrity and then people were bringing, young women were bringing him baskets of food and pillows because the bed wasn't comfortable and it was you know it was just a really strange set of circumstances and you have to think about the fact that Knoxville had in its custody this desperado that was a a folk hero over the whole country so the attention of the country was focused on Kid Curry and what to do with him and uh, his partner Annie Rogers had been arrested in Nashville she came in dressed to the nines with a huge stack of money and asked to change it into fifty and hundred dollar bills. It was and it was the the stolen money. And so the clerk she encountered got suspicious and went to the um, authorities and t- tipped off the police. And they came and got her and took her for questioning. And she stayed in jail in Nashville for quite a long time while Harvey was in jail here in Knoxville. And uh, she was acquitted. The police treated her um, a little roughly, and she had these bills, but they didn't have a whole lot more evidence that would persuade the jury that she was really a partner in crime, and so she was acquitted and turned loose, much to the surprise of the Nashville authorities. (laughs) They thought she was going to jail because his other partner had uh, been arrested and put in prison. So 
Curry was the one that was still out there. The the other guy in the Great Northern Train uh, robbery was eventually gunned down while Harvey was locked up in Knoxville. So mm -hmm. the real mystery becomes what happened to Harvey after he got away. The spectacular escape that he staged. It, it was really brilliant the way he figured out a way to get out of the jail. He knew all the habits of the jailers, and they really were very careful with him. They were watching any signs of weapons, but the way he, he got the wire off the broom and made the the, the little lariat to get the, the deputy pulled to the bars and to get the keys, and he had concocted a little device to get the gun, which they always carefully put their gun away behind bars where you couldn't just reach it. So he had that little thing to pull the gun out, and he he was really, he was very thorough, and he knew the habits of when they checked the cell, and he had it all planned out, and it worked like clockwork. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the poor sheriff of Knox County, Sheriff Fox, looked like an idiot, although he had done a really good job of trying to keep this desperado locked up. They had taken all the other people out of the floor. He was by himself, and he was going in and out of court and, you know, had... Had excellent lawyers. He had the very best lawyers, Reuben Cates and John C. Houck. And so he, he was not doing all that badly at court. And then, of course, the, the real thing that dragged the whole story out for such a long time was the, the dispute between the state versus the federal government on who was going to try him first on what charges, which comes up today. But uh, it dragged out the proceedings and gave him a lot more time to think of a way to get away. And the final irony of riding the poor sheriff's horse across the Gay Street Bridge is just too, too sad for the sheriff. And the sheriff was made to look like an idiot in the press after that. There had been a lot of sniping about local authorities and about different issues. But they, the, the cartoon they drew in the newspaper of the, the automobile chasing Harvey, you know, and it, it made the, the local constabulary look really pitiful. And, and they were really chasing a brilliant criminal, <laughs> a really brilliant man, mm -hmm. whose whole purpose was to die in the saddle, and, uh, and probably, probably did. did. <laughs> <laughs> I think what happened to him after, uh, after Knoxville is probably will never really be settled, but I, I tend to think he probably got killed in the, in the 1904 robbery, which was just two years after, less than two years after he... He got out of jail in Knoxville. There's a wonderful book about Harvey, uh, Harvey Loven in Knoxville by Sylvia Lynch, uh, which was came out about 10 years ago. And she dissected all of the pieces of evidence about the whole story of the Knoxville part of his life and did a, did a really good job with it. And then there are bundles of newspaper articles, as you know, because he was a real celebrity in the sketch that I would love to know the whereabouts of the sketch that Lloyd Branson did of him. He was paid by the Sentinel to come in, or paid by Pinkerton, to come in and do this sketch. And he got it right after uh, Logan was captured and did a really, really nice sketch, which they ran in the paper, but it was also turned over to the authorities as a, as a likeness for a wanted poster or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, really a, it's really quite a dramatic tale, and Knoxville, for that period of time, had enormous amount of notoriety. I mean, the really big events in Harvey Logan's life were all out in the West where he robbed banks and hid out in the Badlands and the hole in the wall and all of those, you know, dramatic kind of Western stories. But could very easily make a movie out of um, 
his incarceration in Knoxville and his escape because it was a almost like a made-for-TV movie kind of script. Yeah. And there were so many threads that, that at the time were not all together connected. If you look at, at the book, you know, she, the Sylvia Lynch had pulled in the sidebar stories about Andy Rogers, who had several aliases and who was his one of the people with whom he was passing all these banknotes. The one thing Harvey and his group did not anticipate was that the, the money that they robbed in the great uh, northern train robbery was going to a new bank, and it was all known serial numbers, brand new money. So they had new money with a series of serial numbers, and that was given out to banks all over the country. So they were picking these bills up everywhere they went. After a little while, people would start recognizing that the money was from the robbery. So if they, mm-hmm. Arkansas, Texas, Missouri, everywhere they went, they couldn't just freely spend this huge amount of money. It was about $80,000 that they had. Everything they did in the robbery came off without a hitch. And a lot of the people out in Wyoming um, admired the bank robbers as kind of folk heroes. And so they kind of made it hard for the hard to catch them out there in the Badlands. But uh, the one thing they didn't know was that it was like marked money tripped him up. <laughs> <laughs> but not for too long. Not for too long. He was successful in his first bi- uh, trip into court. Uh, he... He won the first, very first round in, in court, and of course he was being, there's this seesaw thing, whether he was going to be in the Knox County criminal court or tried in, in federal court, and so he was actually, you know, in the old courthouse and over in our own custom house. A couple of the uh, proceedings that were parts of the cases against him were held here in this building. And of course the case was never finished because he was on appeal and still being held here when he got away. So it never really closed, but uh, he was convicted of 10 of 19 counts of nefarious robbery and other assorted crimes. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, and then there are all kinds of scurrilous stories later about, you know, that he met up with, that he had partners uh, who helped him get away, which I don't think was true, and that he met one of his lawyers and, and gave him a lot of money. This is a very distinguished Knoxville lawyer, and I think I don't think there's any truth to that, but it's like all these folk tales. And then eventually there was this little ballad written about Harvey being in prison, which I'd love to hear. Apparently there are some recordings around of it but uh, about his plan to escape. And uh, It's not a brilliant piece of music, but I'd like to hear it. <laughs> I've seen the lyrics. But that person who apparently came to Knoxville mm-hmm. with him mm-hmm. wasn't one of the main was No, the two other guys were cat were one was killed in Texas. Uh, he was shot to death in a melee, very much like the one that Harvey got into here in, in the on the Bowery in Ike Jones's place. Uh, boy, if that were still standing, wouldn't that be a historic spot? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> it was on the part of Central that was torn down when they built the, the drive, Neyland Drive. The other partner was caught, and, and, tra- and his traveling companion, his woman, friend, whatever, uh, they were both caught and tried and put in prison, so they didn't get to play anymore in the hole-in-the-wall game. What a shame. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You're welcome. You've been listening to Historic Knoxville News, a podcast of the Knox County Public Library. The podcast archives are available from our website at knoxlib.org. That's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G. On the podcast page, you can read article transcripts and find links to library resources related to the subject. 
You can leave your comments on each episode and support the podcast by linking to it with the handy share button. This work is published under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License Copyright 2009 by Knox County Public Library. The music was performed by Music Therapy and our reader was Robbie Griffith. I'm Melissa Brenneman. Join us again for another journey into Knoxville's past. Thank you.